Good afternoon. Good evening. This is Dove Tuzman, and you're back on Equal Footing. Nice to be back in studio. It's been a few weeks. You know, it's been called the oldest hatred, anti-Semitism. It's been on the rise all over the world, particularly in the United States. 2022 will have an all-time high of federally designated anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. And that's building on the previous all-time high of last year of 2021. Total of almost 3,000 incidents. This is a 35% approximate increase year over year since 1979. We have public figures like Kanye West, Yay, as he's now known, Alex Jones, even more mainstream figures. There was there were anti-Semitic comments that uh, former President Donald Trump made at his Bedminster uh, Golf Club a couple of years ago. The stats are undeniable. Obviously, there was the 2018 Tree of Life Synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The 2019 Chabad Center shooting in Poe, California. Even the hostage situation last year at a synagogue in Colleyville, Texas. Where is this coming from? What is the right approach as a Jewish community in the diaspora in the United States in particular? We could make the show about anti-Semitism globally. We're going to focus on the sociopolitical discourse here in North America and more specifically the United States. How do we react? Does the law, does constitutional law protect this, these hate, hate speech and hate crimes? Let's put the question to our esteemed guests this evening. Joined by two outspoken voices on the subject of freedom of speech, hate speech, and anti-Semitism. Paul Finkelman has been on the program before. Professor Finkelman is the Robert E. and Susan T. Rydell Visiting Professor at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Peter, Minnesota. He's held the Fulbright Research Chair in Human Rights and Social Justice at the University of Ottawa. He's the former President and Chancellor of Gratz College. Professor Finkelman received his B.A. in American Studies from Syracuse University, his Master's and Ph.D. in U.S. History from the University of Chicago, and he was later a fellow in Law and Humanities at Harvard Law School. The Supreme Court of the United States has cited Professor Finkelman six times in cases involving religious liberty, affirmative action, and the Bill of Rights. In 2019, prior to her passing, former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg quoted Professor Finkelman in her opinion for a unanimous unanimous court opinion on the meaning of the 14th Amendment. Professor Finkelman, welcome back to Equal Footing. Thanks for joining us. It's a delight to be back, uh, and it's always fun to be on this program because we get to educate people and talk about really important issues. Yeah, this is 
definitely something that's grabbing a lot of headlines. And we'll get to the inspiration of why we program the show for tonight in a moment. But let me introduce your friend and colleague, Professor Kenneth Stern. Professor Stern is the director of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate. He's an attorney. He's an award-winning author. For 25 years, Professor Stern was the American Jewish community's expert, Jewish committee, pardon me, the AJC, expert on anti-Semitism. He was also the lead drafter of the Working Definition of Anti-Semitism paper from that organization. Professor Stern has argued as a lawyer before the Supreme Court of the United States. He's testified before the U.S. Congress. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, and the Jewish Forward. He's been a visiting assistant professor of Jewish studies and a visiting assistant professor of human rights at Bard College. And his book about the Oklahoma City bombing, A Force Upon the Plain, the American Militia Movement and the Politics of Hate, was nominated for the prestigious National Book Award. He's written numerous books on anti-Semitism and on Holocaust denial. Professor Stern's most recent book, highly recommend, is called The Conflict Over the Conflict, the Israel-Palestine Campus Debate, published in 2020. Professor Stern, welcome to Equal Footing. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Professor Stern, you get the hot seat first as a lawyer. What is... What is the broad concept of freedom of speech in the United States? And is there such a thing as hate speech under the law? Well, there's no such thing as hate speech under the law. There's certainly hateful speech, which is speech that conveys, obviously, animus, dehumanization, demonization, and so forth, uh, towards, you know, groups or individuals or so forth because of particular classifications of what groups they're part of, their religion, and so forth. But that type of speech is protected uh, under the First Amendment. Um, you can't harass, you can't intimidate, you can't discriminate, but you can say things that we'd all find to be awful. That doesn't mean that you just let them have a free pass. Uh, it provides an opportunity for people of goodwill and others to counter that speech, to expose it, to combat it. But you can't make it illegal. And part of the reason for that is that none of us are smart enough to figure out, you know, where the line should be. We understand that speech can be, uh, again, traumatic to people and so forth. But if you start making lines of what's okay and what's not okay, uh, then you create basically a, an authoritarian type of government that can decide what type of speech is okay and what kind of isn't. And if you look back in history, um, you know, civil rights movement, um, I grew up as a kid in the Vietnam War era, it was the speech about civil rights, it was the speech about opposing the war that the government was trying to curtail. So I'm very much a component of protecting free speech, the law protects it, but I still think there are many things we can do about hateful speech. Another lawyer who's argued before the Supreme Court is, as you have, uh, the Harvard Law School, Professor Alan Dershowitz put it this way, freedom of speech means freedom for those you despise to express the most despicable views. So yeah, we may hate what's being said, but love the right to say it. I think that one of the confusions around this point, though, Professor Stern, is that there are certain forms of speech that are suppressed, right? Not all speech is protected. So w before we kind of get into specifically anti-Semitic speech, and I want to also uh, involve here Professor Finkelman, in a moment to set the historical context, what forms 
of speech or verbal expression are actually suppressed or have government restrictions on them under U.S. constitutional law? Well, the, I think the, the clearer way to look at this um, is to not divide it between speech and action, but divide it between you know expression on one hand, which could be done by speech or could be done done by art or other means, posters and so forth, things that people write. Um, and then on the other hand, things like harassment, intimidation, and discrimination. So you, if you are going to threaten somebody with death at three in the morning, um, you know, that's, that's speech and that's not protected. Uh, but if you say, I mean, one, one, one way to think of it, I go on a street corner and I say, I think all, you know, fill in the black. Blanks, blacks, Jews, gays, whatever, should be killed. I have the right to say that. Um, but if I say that in a way where there are you know, some skinheads with baseball bats and a black person walking across the street, that's a different, that's a different uh, situation. That's, and that's sort of where I think you know, people should look at A lot of the time people say, oh, this is so hateful, it shouldn't be allowed to be uh, expressed. But the line is very limited. It's when there's a, you know, an imminent type of a, a threat and when it's more, again, in harassment, intimidation, so and when really just expressing something to find vile. When there's an incitement to violence or, or something that could cause bodily harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remember in, in, in school here as a kid, you learn you know, free speech doesn't protect your right to yell fire in a crowded theater if there's no fire because people could be could be hurt. And obviously other things like you know forms of defamation and and obscenity mm-hmm. and child pornography sure. they're not allowed. But in general, one of the one of the myths we'd like to burst right up front is there really isn't any such thing like you said as hate speech as defined by the law, correct? Right. I mean, some people use it to say, ah, there's an exception to the Constitution for, for speech that conveys hate. And there isn't. There isn't. Uh, and I think one of the problems with that sort of concept, aside from the legal one, is the practical one, which means that people look to courts or look to uh, others to stop speech we don't like. And there's so many more effective things that we can do, and I hope we get to talk about them, that sort of disappear when you think this is the easy answer. Fighting hate is complicated and it takes resources, but when you think there's a simple rule that should strike it out, that that blinds us to many things that really do work. Professor Finkelman, we entitled tonight's show in our social media blast is Skokie 2.0. And this refers to an historical context of the problem of the protection, or lack thereof, of anti-Semitic speech in the United States. Educate us for a moment on what was what was Skokie 1.0 Skokie 1.0 began when a guy named Frank Collin who was the head of the American Nazi Party um, decided that he wanted to march in Chicago and uh, at the time Chicago required a $350,000 insurance bond um, to march in uh, to have a public march, mostly to make sure that the city wasn't destroyed. So in October 1976, Colin sent letters to suburbs asking for a parade permit. Uh, Skokie, which is a suburb of Chicago with a very high percentage of Jews living in the city, and also at the time a unusually high percentage of Holocaust survivors who lived in Skokie. Uh, Skokie... Um, initially agreed uh, that they 
had a right. He had a right to a permit, and they would give him a permit, and uh, he would have to perhaps put up an insurance bond in Skokie. Uh, and the city council then ordered the city attorney to seek an, in- an injunction, which is a legal proceeding that prevents him from. Uh, uh, marching in Skokie, and in May uh, 1977, the city council required that anybody who wanted to demonstrate in Skokie would have to have a $350,000 cash bond uh, to uh, make sure that there was no riot, no no damage to things. Now, 350000 does not seem like a lot of money today. Uh, it is to me, but, you know, to an organization it might not be. But in those days, that was a significant amount of money. That was real money. And, in fact, one of the ironies of this is so the very first... a barrier to, to them to march. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the very first organization prevented from marching was an obscure group, which some of our listeners may know of, called the Jewish War Veterans. And they wanted to march on Veterans Day. Hundreds of them in their in their uh, American Legion and VFW hats and those who could still fit in them in their Army uniforms, the Jewish war veterans, always marched. They so couldn't to, march. So to get back to the Nazi Party, they, they were ultimately okay. allowed to march, right? Um, so, so, well, I'm sorry, what did you just say? The, 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 the Nazi group, they wanted to march in Skokie in the late 1970s. Ultimately, the, 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 the barriers were taken away and they were allowed to march. Uh, well, it's, 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 it's more complicated than that, okay? So they, um, the, um, city council also said you could not march with military uniforms on. Uh, okay, so this then goes to the Illinois Appellate Court, which says the swastika is not protected speech, and therefore um, the, Mar- the Nazis can only march if they don't have the swastika flag. Uh, the Illinois Supreme Court upholds the right of the Nazis to march. It goes to the U.S. District Court. By the way, there's a lot of money, a lot of resources uh, being spent, and the American Nazis are getting wonderful publicity. And here is the important lesson. We're going to get to that well, in the next segment about this kind of strategy. Oh, 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 all right. Okay. Okay. So let me let me finish the story because because it goes to the federal courts. Uh, Skokie, by the way, has 40,000 Jews out of 70,000 people. There might be 10% of the people in Skokie are survivors. Uh, in June 1978, um, 20 Nazis protests in front of the Chicago Federal Building, uh, 2,000 counter-protesters showed up, and 1,000 cops. Okay? So that's the end. They never march in Skokie. Okay. They never but get from a march. legal perspective, we're going to take our first break in a moment, the, ultimately yeah. the right to march is protected. The right to the swastika on the uniforms is not. And to a large extent... No, no, the, no, no. The courts the courts say they can march with swastikas. With march with swastikas. Okay. Illinois courts, the federal court says... You know, it's a symbol. You can march with your symbol. Okay. We're, we're, and, and most of the lawyers that represented the group along the way were Jewish, by the way. <laughs> okay. We're going to take um, a fir- first break yeah. in a moment. Uh, we're here joined by Professor Paul Finkelman, former president and chancellor of Gratz College, Professor Kenneth Stern, head at, uh, visiting professor at Bard College and director of the Center for the Study of Hate. We're talking about anti-Semitism. What should be protected? Where do we draw the line? How far do we go in protecting that First Amendment concept? And what actually may be a definition that we can agree on, on hate speech? Participate. 
Give us your questions. I'm sure there are listeners right now have experienced anti-Semitism. I certainly have in my daily life and wondered, was that a person allowed to just say that or do that? Give us your stories. Ask your questions. You have two of the country's foremost experts on this subject. If you want to participate live, 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. If you want to text in a question or comment or send it by WhatsApp. That's a different number. Please don't call this number. Send it in by text. Questions here for Professor Finkelman or Professor Stern to 917-428-4062. That's 917-428-4062. We'll be right back. Equal Footing is brought to you in part by Mechanical Art Capital. Are you a watch lover? Do you collect high-end timepieces? Are you a watch dealer? I know we have some listeners who are watch dealers. You have all this value sitting in your safe. Get some cash for it. You don't even have to sell the pieces. You can get financing against your watch collection or your watch inventory in 24 hours, max two days. Mechanical Art Capital. Check it out on your iPhone or Android app store. Just put in those three words, Mechanical Art Capital. You can also also call, if you want to do it over the phone, 833-209-0972. If you use Mechanical Art Capital service, you get a free appraisal as well of your collection or your inventory of timepieces, and you get to track that value over time, just like you would like a stock portfolio. And again, you can get cash overnight from the watches that you get appraised. Mechanical Art Capital, three words, on your smartphone or 833-209-0972. You can also go to their website, mechanicalartcapital.com. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on I've been told All right, we're talking about hate speech. Some people call it that. Hateful speech, anti-Semitism. What's allowed? How should we react? Where do we draw the line? Professor Stern, we've talked about, Professor Finkelman walked through us that, that kind of social history about the, this, the Skokie March. Uh, right now, there's been, there's more than ever anti-Semitic comments in public discourse and on, uh, university campuses, et cetera. And increasingly, there's a drive to kind of shut down some of these voices, kind of cancel these voices. And I want to, for a moment, to ask you to take off your lawyer's hat and look at this more sociologically. As a community, what's the right reaction when we, you know, read something on Twitter from from uh, Kanye West or we have a speaker come on to our local college campus and say things that we find abhorrent. What do you think we should do individually and collectively in response? Well, you know, I think that hate is something that never should be ignored, but I think that, again, we want to look with a little bit of a wider lens. So let me make, you know, two, two points. One is um, a situation that was sort of similar in some ways to Skokie a few years ago. Your listeners may remember that in early 2017, uh, there were a series of death threats against 
Jews and also their supporters in uh, Whitefish, Montana, Western Montana. And then there was a group of neo-Nazi skinheads that were going to come and do an armed march in the town. Clearly hateful, clearly protected speech. What do you do? So what a bunch of us did, including the human rights groups there and some of the Jewish community, is we organized online something called the Project Lemonade Approach. Uh, what we did is we got people to make pledges conditioned on how long these guys, if they showed up to march, would actually march. Um, and the money would go to things that they would detest, uh, anti-bias education, uh, things about anti-Semitism, security for the Jewish community, and so forth. Um, and so that gave people um, something concrete that they can do to help rather than just like something or dislike something on Twitter or Facebook. Um, it gave the community there some sense that people beyond their community had their back, and it gave the mark the neo-Nazis who ultimately didn't show up, which we don't know exactly why, but this may have been part of their reasoning. It gave them a disincentive. They were going to raise money for things that they detested. So there are a bunch of strategies like that when we look, um, uh, you know, how to be creative. The second thing I want to point out is we sometimes, I think, make a mistake when we look at what drives the anti-Semitism we're seeing today as solely a matter of what people are saying about Jews. Remember, the Tree of Life, which you mentioned, was after President Trump and others were complaining about uh, invaders coming from the south, you know, the border, and the Bowers who shot up the Tree of Life uh, felt that he had to do something, and there had been a highest meeting there. Clearly, a white supremacist thing, but sure. we don't, you know, you didn't list it. You didn't list in your uh, litany of, of particularly awful hate crimes the shooting of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans at the Walmart, sure. uh, where somebody no... had the same, same, somebody who had the same thoughts and the same ideology just picked a different target. Sure. So we need and to there's, see there's what's driving no in a larger way. There's no assertion here that anti-Semitism is um, the only or even the, the worst form of, of hate speech. It's just, I'm going to use this as an example. Professor Finkelman, let me ask you a question. Can I add something to that, please, for shoot, one second? Shoot. Just one quick second. Okay, the guy who shot up the synagogue in San Diego had bombed the mosque a couple of weeks before that. Okay, so one of the things, one of the answers to this is that the Jewish community has to organize with allies around the United States. Uh, the fact is, the same people who are attacking mosques are attacking synagogues and attacking black churches. The guy who killed, uh, you know, uh, blacks in their church in Charleston was a neo-Nazi. He was an anti-Semite. Right. And and it's so a, it's a fair point. They hated after and and hate crimes as exhibited in. in it, as we're, you're discussing here, where there's physical violence, I think there's, they're absolutely beyond any, any form of kind of red line. But what I want to try to do here tonight is get to the, this, I think the thornier, uh, the, the stickier wicket, if you will, around speech alone. And, and, and Professor Finkelman, let, let's go back to Kanye West or Ye, as he's currently known for a moment. He had a, okay. was a, a tweet. I think it was tweeted on Instagram, a tweet last, last year. I should get that right. And, and the listener can help me where he said that, uh, uh, he would like to recommend it going, um, death con three on Jewish people, Jewish people being in all mm -hmm. caps. Now, you know, he's had numerous times where his accounts have been, Cancel have been, uh, you know, turned off and, and so forth. But that, that, 
that obviously has got a huge following. He's a political figure, literally was, you know, ran for president. Um, what should be the response to that from a community and from a legal perspective and from a community perspective? Well, the community perspective response to him was that he lost almost every one of his endorsements. He lost a tremendous amount of money. He got fired from various companies that he endorsed. And by the way, when a basketball player for the Brooklyn Nets did it, he got, he lost his endorsements. Uh, so one answer is that the community, not just the Jewish community, but the sane, rational, humane community in this country can come together as they did in Montana, as they did with Kanye West, and and let them know that they are no longer welcome in 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 among decent people. Okay. And and by the way, and the legally business, the legally should there be any should there be any consequence for him in your view, Professor Finkel? There is no legal consequence. You know, he he hasn't threatened anybody. He's made some kind of vague, weird comment. Now, if he made it in front of a synagogue with a gun in his hand, yeah, because because that that's that's a very different thing. Okay. So, okay. By, by the way, I want to thank a listener who, who gave me the actual. It was from October seventh, two thousand twenty-two. It's since been deleted. Twitter uh, a tweet, and he said. I'm, it was done at late at night. I'm a bit sleepy tonight, but when I wake up, I'm going DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. That's, that's what he wrote. Now, to me, that okay, sounds right. like a threat. But, so, Professor Stern, that doesn't qualify as a threat to you. That's, that, that is protected speech? That's a protected speech. If he said, I'm going after, you know, ex-Jew, um, that may be not, right? Depends on, again, on the context. But if you're talking about, I want to go DEFCON 3 on Jews or whatever, that's just a ugly, but it's protected uh, speech. And again, the, you know, the, 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 to Paul's uh, comment, I don't want people to lose it. It was awful. Kanye had a huge following. But look at the reaction. If you want to know about the level of anti-Semitism, the, part of the calculus has to be also the reaction, right? And the reaction was he lost all those contracts. Um, you know, and then you had a White House meeting about anti-Semitism that was in no small measure in reaction okay. to what happened. So, gentlemen, before, so, before but, our next break, because I, I want to get to the, the, the consensus here between the, the two of you, unanimity, unanimity, if we can, and then I want to get into some of the tougher questions that I have, think some of our listeners mm-hmm. have. So you both agree that's anti-Semitic. I don't think there's any debate about that, mm-hmm. right? And you both agree right. it's protected. Protected speech. We live mm-hmm. in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. I hate what you say, but I love your right to say it. And uh, it's, it's, it's protected speech. And um, now what about, uh, is it, it I, I promise to stay, stay on anti-Semitism, but I think this helps make the point. What about, for example, when a white person, because I think we can acknowledge it's a little bit different when someone co-ops the word within their own community. When a white person, without any irony, not part of some comedic bit or something else, um, call, uses the N-word to refer to an element of or the black community at large. That's also protected speech? Yeah. Yeah, of course. But you asked about the personal response. I have a personal response to all this. When I'm in an email conversation or a personal conversation with somebody and he uses the N-word, or by the way, he uses the Yiddish S-word, 
right. which is, you know, Svartza, uh, I say I do not have conversations with people who use these words. I don't listen to racist jokes. Mm-hmm. I don't have conversations with people, and I and I am on all kinds of list serves where if somebody says that, uh, my response is simply that you know what you said is not acceptable. And by the way, almost every list serve I'm on, if somebody says that, they'll get kicked off the list serve. Right. So you're saying so you, you personally you, you, have, you, you personally have cancel that person. You personally cancel that person, but there's no legal consequence. And and to be fair, you know, it reminds me a little about. Uh, you remember George Orwell's uh, novel 1984? Most of us read that if we went to school, at least in the United States. And mm-hmm. in that, and I remember Newspeak, right? It was this everyone in the super state Oceania and the book had to speak the same language. All had, all citizen had to speak this language called Newspeak in exactly the same way. And that those way in terms of phrase had to be approved by the state. And so there is this sense of, you know, and we talked about this in a little bit in the pregame for this show that how do where where would you set the line right one were to maybe very offensive to one person but in another context may be acceptable and i think the n word is an example of that when black comedians use it in a certain context it's generally accepted so you know where do you where do you set the line i guess that's not the government's role in your view but i'll tell you what gentlemen we definitely have some listeners that uh, are going to challenge some of these points after the break we're here with professor kenneth stern Professor Paul Finkelman, we're talking about anti-Semitic speech, hate speech, what should be protected, what's the law, how should we react. We'll be right back. Freedom is yours. Freedom is mine. Freedom of speech so I can write down these lines. If you and I. Equal Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. All right, we are talking about hate speech, sometimes called at least hateful speech. It's not a legal definition, despite what some people may think. I thought that before I started preparing for this program with the help of our wonderful producer, and I've been educated since. Hate speech is not a former legal term. Any form of speech, as long as you're not inciting someone to violence, is protected. Gentlemen, we have two professors on who are foremost uh, for running voices on this issue. This is in the press a lot. And I said earlier in the show, we disclose what inspired us to do this show tonight. Some may think it's, you know, some of the news today on the, the Department of Justice's brief around uh, cases against Donald Trump that have to do with things that he said uh, January 6th that could have incited to violence. Interesting, coincidental, but not what inspired us. What actually inspired us was kind of 
kind of nerdy. And it was the Supreme Court hearing last week, the, the uh, case Gonzalez versus Google, which has to do with the liability of speech on Internet platforms. And we've already gotten a few questions on this issue and I'm not going to betray listeners by doing a deep dive on, you know, wonky uh, Supreme Court. Uh, decisions, but I will tell you in general that you know across ideological lines, the Supreme Court justices were skeptical, skeptical, skeptical of the arguments that YouTube in this case should be held liable for you know it, in this case how its algorithm kind of presents uh, potential terrorist-minded content to to certain um, to certain you know uh, users. It's very difficult to find businesses liable for speech on their on their on their platforms. But the question is, gentlemen, let's start with you, since I just was talking about the law, Professor Stern, and you're, you're a lawyer, you've argued before the Supreme Court. Isn't some of our definition, elements of our definition of hate speech, our lack of definition, kind of dated? Because now, in an era where a lot of this, if not most of this, occurs anonymously online, it creates, through these forums, opportunities to quickly blur the line between stating an opinion and inciting violence uh, or or um, or harmful activity against a whole group of people. Uh, it, so, shouldn't we kind of revise our um, First Amendment rules based on the fact that all a lot of this is now happening in in chat rooms and on and anonymously online, Professor Stern? I, I think the the answer, short answer is no, um, and the reason is we've had this type of transformation before, and there are differences certainly in terms of how messages get transmitted and, and received, and their volume and so forth. But you know, we've had that with the printing press, we've had that with radio. Some listeners may remember learning about Father Coughlin uh, and what he was doing. Um, there, you know, television, uh, the early internet, and certainly now social media. But the the guideposts, the principles to me, should stay the, the same. And the flip side of it, which we don't look at as much, and it's one of the things we're looking at the Bard Center for the Study of Hate, is, again, how do, okay, this is a new tool. Um, how do we use it more effectively? How do we use social media to combat hate in the ways that Paul was talking about, whether it's just in our interpersonal uh, relations or on a more societal level? And those are the more important things. And, I, I, I you know, again... There was a case years ago uh, before the Supreme Court, an early hate crime case, where the claim was made that there were some people that uh, saw a movie and that inspired them to commit an act. And the answer is no. On the other hand, if you do the same sort of thing that would over a telephone or in person and you use this new technology to communicate, let's make a plot to go, uh, you know, kill somebody or do something that's inspired by who they are, uh, you know, tag a synagogue or whatever, then it doesn't really matter that it happens through that that means the same as if you get it by other means. Professor Stern, while you have the mic, we have a listener named Seth who admits that he's a lawyer. I'm joking, Seth. You say you're a lawyer. Uh, and uh, and uh, I'm going to simplify, Seth, your comment to have it be generally understandable. Uh, but but he says that, we're, that this isn't really accurate because the FCC bans the use of vulgar words because the airwaves are considered federal property. And it doesn't seem very different than broadcast over the Internet. It seems like there's a big double standard here. So 
I guess part of the question here, Professor Stern, is why should the FCC be able to ban words? Even on this, on this program, for example, I can't, I can't say the, the common, the more common reference to, to, uh, to feces, uh, because it's a, it's, it's a banned word. Um, that seems like much more of a suppression of, or let me put it this differently. That seems like, uh, um, a more, kind of random or nonsensical suppression of my free speech than limiting my ability to use the the n-word or or something else on um on uh, on a on an internet uh, chat room well but you have the ability you know if you're on the internet to uh say certain things and you're you know you have a license the the FCC regulates and that's part of the condition of how you're going to uh use that license but that you there's no restriction of putting something in a book. There's no restriction about putting something in the email. Um, and, you know, so the, that limited type of exception shouldn't be seen as something that we should do writ large uh, Professor at all. Finkelman, doesn't, with all due respect, Professor Stern, doesn't this seem like a, like a, a distinction without a difference? I mean, why can't I use that word for feces on the air, but I can have a, an let anti-Semitic me, rant on, on the Internet? That just seems ridiculous. Dove, Dove, let me, let me offer a different explanation. The reason is because the television or the radio are limited frequencies that are licensed because lots of people would have a, like to have a radio station. We can't have that many radio stations. It won't work. And because anyone, a child, can randomly turn on the TV or turn on the radio and hear these things. And we have decided as a society, right or wrong, that we don't want to expose children to sex scenes on TV or certain language on the radio. Uh, the Internet is different because uh, because it's you're not going to turn on your car radio and suddenly get this, this Internet stuff. You have to actually go out and seek it. So that's another reason why it's different. But by the way, I, I think it's in some ways it, it's a kind of a dumb rule given the, given the nature of our society today, but it's the rule we have. And it makes some sense. Does that, does that does that help you? It helps me a little, but and I, we'll get off this topic in a moment. I, I thank you, Seth, for bringing this up. I mean, it seems to me that that's just a matter of social evolution. I mean, the the fact that obscenity words that are obscene, and I remember the whole George Carlin. By the way, if you if I go on the internet, yeah. look up George Carlin uh, routines on obscenity from the nineteen seventies. They're just ridiculous. I mean, they're it's this is outdated. It's changed over time. I, I and it seems like that's much less harmful than. Right. Right, 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 your congressman. <laughs> okay, so it does, it, this is a legislative issue then, right? That's not really a constitutional issue. That's an interpretation of the First Amendment. No, no, yeah, yeah. But, but and that's right. It, and, 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 and again, it's really important for us to understand that the, the regulation of ideas, the regulation of communication, has to be open in a free and democratic society. Otherwise, we are in Mr. Putin's Russia, where you don't, you know, you want to look at what it's like if you don't have free speech? Go look at what happens to people in Russia who say, oh, 
maybe we shouldn't have invaded Ukraine for no reason other than Putin's ego. And guess what? You're suddenly in jail. Sure. The slippery slope argument that you're making, I get. Uh, but that that can often be used to defend really abhorrent positions as well. It's it's tricky. Let's get to another another uh, listener question here. Uh, this, I think, was a riff on the previously quoted Kanye West uh, tweet saying, you know, he was going to wake up and go DEFCON 3 on, on the Jewish people. Um, this listener points out that if you say death to the Jews on a tweet and you compare that to the same person with the same level of following that says death to blacks or death and then uses that N word, which we're just talking about uh, here, mm-hmm. the communal reaction is night and day. The listener goes on, but the point I think is well taken. I'd like you to now address this. Let's take off our, you know, legal perspective or constitutional, uh, law, um, prism of analysis. And let's start with you, Professor Finkelman. Do you agree with this listener? I guess the point being that anti-Semitism is somehow much more, um, abided, uh, than, than anti-black tell, tell, bigotry tell, in the public square. Tell that to uh, a Brooklyn Nets basketball player who uh, was suspended and then traded uh, for merely liking a movie. I, I think Irving, that, right? yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. His, you know, the response to him was pretty strong. And he, by the way, he's no longer getting paid to to push shoes or any other products uh so so i i think and, and look we are we are talking about this from the perspective of jews who have been active in jewish issues who care about judaism who care about the jewish community and and so when i say this i i just want to be clear about this i think there is a tendency to say things that simply are not true. I'm going to give you one. Yeah, but wait, wait, before, you, before you go there, and let's stay on basketball for a minute, though. Could, could you imagine? I mean, I get it that Kyrie Irving get, got kind of semi-canceled, if you will. Obviously, there's no legal consequence for him, but he had a tremendous commercial consequence. But if you had, like, yeah. Nikola jo- uh, Jokic or Joe Harris or, you know, Duncan Robinson, Kevin Love, any of these other white NBA players, can you imagine one of them saying, you know, I, I don't know, I want to go DEFCON three on on black i don't know people. there's a there's I a mean, there was a great picture think, for the boston hang, hang, Red on, Sox. hang on a second do you think the reaction we're going to get to the hall of fame <laughs> you're talking about kurt schilling but let's let's, let's yeah, stay at basketball yeah, for a minute a Is, do you think but do you think the reaction would have been as muted i mean don't you think if one of those players said that they'd be like kicked out of the nba can i chime in here for a second too? yeah I'm shoot professor stern Think again in comparative terms. What would have happened if somebody said we should get every Jew and register them? Donald Trump floated that idea about Muslims, right? And, you know, imagine if he had said that about Jews. And then flip forward to about the same period of time we're talking about Kanye and and Kyrie Irving. You have this wonderful new congressman from New York, George Santos. And one of the things that he lied about among the whole litany of everything he lied about was that he was Jewish. Could you imagine if he said, I'm going to lie and I'm going to say I'm a Muslim? Now, is that protected protected speech, that lie a congressman? Sure, sure. Sure. But my, 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 my point is, 
I mean, he may lose his seat. You know, all those things have, has consequences. But yeah, I mean, that's 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 protected to be said. But the point I'm trying to make is, you know, the sort of comparative thing. We could play game play out certain different scenarios. But when we try to put things in buckets, we lose so much. And one of the the points I, I want to stress is what is anti-Semitism? It's conspiracy theory about Jews conspiring to harm non-Jews, and it's an explanation for what goes wrong in the world. So things that promote conspiracy Professor Stern, theory, some would add, some would add to theory. that definition. It's also denial of, of Israel's right to exist. Some would, but you also have Jews that would disagree with that. But the point is, um, the you know the 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 point is that the you know the, the larger environment which breeds anti-Semitism uh, is one that that really uh, tarnishes democracy as an institution and promotes conspiracy theories. So when we think about just what people are saying about Jews as the be-all and end-all of what drives anti-Semitism, we lose so much about what really makes it happen. Fair point. We're here with Professor Kenneth Stern, with Professor Paul Finkelman, both outspoken voices on protected speech, including what we often in common vernacular called hate speech. We'll be right back on equal footing. You can participate. Thank you for your, your texts, by the way. Got some good questions here. The number is always in the show to text or WhatsApp a question or comment into our guests live is 917-428-4062. To participate live on the phone line, that's 718 9090. If you call in, please be patient. Let it ring till we pick you up. We'll be right back on equal footing. One of the things we try to do on equal footing, in addition to mixing it up and curating the music, is to cover topics that are hard to talk about, sometimes confusing, and often we disconnect from our religious or spiritual life. And you know what? I'm here to say I don't think anything's disconnected. If you're living a life of faith, we're all in the same world, and there shouldn't be anything that we're afraid to talk about. We're not going to turn into a pillar of salt by looking at an issue. And one of those issues is erectile dysfunction. It is something that can cause great emotional pain, couples, the inability to have enjoyable sex. There are solutions out there. It's nothing to be ashamed about. It affects almost 70% of men in their lifetimes. And those solutions go beyond expensive blue pills that many people can't take because of comorbidities, side effects, etc. Check out Manhattan Medical's new effective gains wave therapy for erectile dysfunction. Gains wave therapy, you may have heard of. It's been around in Europe for a long time, recently in Canada, more recently in the United States. It helps most patients, even into their 80s, achieve excellent results in conquering erectile dysfunction. It's non-invasive. It's surgery-free. It's painless. There are no side effects. Check it out. Manhattan Medical. Call 888-EDQR9 is the number. That's 888 888- EDQR9 in numbers 888-332-8739. If you call now and you mention you heard about Manhattan Medical's Gainswave Therapy for ED on equal footing, 
you get a free consultation. That is not a giveaway. It's a $250 value. You can get that free consultation not only in Manhattan in the New York area, but anywhere in the United States by a telehealth video consultation. I'm going to give that number out one more time. Manhattan Medical's Gains Wave Therapy for Erectile Dysfunction. And you can get a free consultation. You mentioned you heard about it on the Equal Footing radio show. Last time, the number 888-332-8739. I've been caught. Gentlemen, I appreciate you being on tonight talking about this sensitive subject of anti-Semitism. Two menches, two Jewish gentlemen talking about why people should have the right and be protected in their desire to say anti-Semitic things, even though we despise it, we respect their right to say it. Now, in I want to turn the lens a little bit, Professor Finkelman and Professor Stern, towards away from the legal and definitional and towards the effective reaction. And I was really interested in our pregame discussions before we got on the air about how you both felt that in the example of Skokie, the late 70s, and more recent examples of people really fighting anti-Semitic speakers on college campuses and so forth, that as a Jewish community, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, in fact, by having such an adverse reaction to this anti-Semitic speech. Um, talk to me about that. Talk to our listeners about that. What do you think is the most, me, as a Jew, is the most effective reaction to anti-Semitic speech? I, 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 I think you do. Well, I'll go quickly. I, I think you're misstating what we said. I think we do want to fight anti-Semitic speech. We want to confront it. We want to have perhaps a peaceful counter-demonstration. We want to use creative tactics like in Montana or in uh, St. Louis where the Nazis wanted to march during the during they were when they were fighting over Skokie, and the mayor of St. Louis said fine. They wanted police protection. Mayor of St. Louis said fine. He gave him 500 black cops with guns and sticks and badges. The Nazis were afraid to get out of what was essentially a dump truck, and they left St. Louis with the tail their tail between the legs, their legs, and every single newscaster mocked them. So there are ways to fight it. What we're saying is. What you don't do is what they did in Skokie, which was to hand the Nazis the opportunity to get on every network TV station and saying, we're protecting American values, we're protecting free speech, we're fighting for white American values, and these Jews are trying to destroy the Constitution. That's what Skokie set itself up for, and that was the mistake. Yeah, let me add to that, because I, I wasn't around um, practicing law at the time in Skokie, but I've talked to people who were in the Jewish community, and they felt exactly as, as Paul said. Nobody would have noticed if, um, you know, this small group just was ignored, but they gave them tons of free publicity, and I can give other examples of, of you know, they, would have, they loved it, because they got them more publicity than they would have gotten on their own. Let me give you another example that I think is very effective. Um, some places have road signs that you can, you know, this uh, stretch of road picked up by this company or that company, and the state can't uh, discriminate based on viewpoint. So there have been cases where the Ku Klux Klan wanted to have this road taken over, you know, cleaned up by the Ku Klux Klan. They had, if you're having all comers of groups, you can have the Klan. But what 
was creative is that the legislators decide, okay, Klan can pick up, you know, the garbage here, and we're going to rename it the Rosa Parks Highway. And the Jewish community was helpful in getting that change. So there are ways of <laughs> twisting the speech on its head as opposed to just trying to suppress it. I have a question for you guys uh, personally. I was debating whether to ask this question. I don't think I've ever shared this story, certainly not on the air, only very rarely personally. I don't actually like to share examples in my life of experiencing anti-Semitism in a certain sense as a mirror to that question that I just asked because I feel like it amplifies the point of view. And frankly, I feel like I don't face it as much as others. In the last, I'd say, uh, 12, 13 years of my life more because I've been wearing my kippah on a regular basis. But, you know, if you don't, if I'm not wearing my kippah, I don't necessarily look Jewish, uh, for my visage. And so I don't feel like I have a right to complain about it as much. However, once I was in Prague, so outside of the purview of the U.S. law, and I was walking my dog late at night and there were a group of, uh, you know, looked like inebriated teenagers across the street. I was wearing my kippah and uh, one of them uh, yelled what was in Czech, uh, dirty Jew. And as, and they were kind of mocking. That was just language, you know, but I did, I did feel threatened. It was, it was, it was late at night. There were a group of them. I was alone. And, um, but I was still kind of handling, I actually noticed the police car a couple blocks down, probably, I'm not sure if they were doing anything, done anything where they noticed, but I, I wasn't totally freaked out. Turned my back, started to go back towards I was, where I was staying, and I felt some some stuff hitting my back. True story. And um, I turned around, and I was there was feces being thrown at me. I, I don't know whether this was something that was planned, whether doing it with others. It was it was one of the oddest um, experiences of my life. Now, if we were in this country. Where does the hate speech end and the criminal liability begin? Because I think the minute they threw it at you. Okay. But is that real? Is that real? Because clearly the ones who are yelling, you know, incited. It wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a mob, little, little mini mob mentality. Um, the, you know, the, the, look, the, the, the person who committed the crime, it's a crime. You're being assaulted. You know, it's it's it, it, it's it's really it's and really if, plain if that, and simple. If that person is divorced from the person who who you know yelled at me and kind of got the other people in the group's attention, that other person has no liability. The person who just yelled didn't throw any anything. It depends again on the context and the environment. There's the example of the skinheads I gave before, but let me give you let me give you another answer to that, if I might. So there was a push to get some legislation passed in the, in the state that would have made it difficult to say certain things that people were concerned about was anti-Semitic. And there was a rabbi who wrote a piece in support of the legislation in the local paper. And he said, look, Hitler didn't, you know, kill anybody with his own hands. You know, it was, it, he, he used words, and shouldn't we uh, restrict those words? And a former general secretary of the AAUP and I wrote a response, and we don't disagree that words can lead to horrible actions. But the point that the rabbi forgot was that in that environment of Nazi Germany, dissent was not allowed. Books right. were burned. And when you start 
giving that type of ability to suppress speech you don't like, that's the road you go down. And I'm a firm believer that our ability to combat all forms of hatred, anti-Semitism included, again, is really linked to our ability to have strong democratic institutions. And that's one of the things that worries me today, that they're not as strong as they need to be. Professor Finkelman, I think you you shared a story. Sorry, I just want to make you have some great stories. I think you shared a story, if I remember correctly, about a student who asked you about the the right to say certain things that were sympathetic to Nazi ideology in Germany versus the U.S. And I think that 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 illustrates this difference to some degree. Am I remembering correctly? Yeah. Yes. I I mean, I had I, I, I encountered this with a where I gave a talk and some uh, on free speech and and a young professor who happened to have been born in Germany I later found out she also had Jewish ancestry but that was irrelevant said well how do you feel about suppressing Nazi speech in Germany and my response was Germany has a very different history a very different uh political world than we do. Uh, I will quote Justice Louis Brandeis, the first Jew to serve on the Supreme Court, the man who saved Zionism during World War I when it was collapsing in Europe. And he writes in one opinion, if there be time to expose through discussion the falsehood and fallacies to avert the evil by the process of education, the remedy to be applied is more speech not enforced silence. Right. And I and I think ultimately what we have to do is combat bad speech with good speech over and over again. We have to be vigilant. And um and and that works. Uh you know because when we do that, the reality is uh you know, there hasn't been an anti-Semitic law passed in the United States in, a, in 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 two centuries. You know, the last time the United States did something officially anti-Semitic was Ulysses Grant kicking Jews out of Kentucky in, in the Civil War, and Abraham Lincoln countermanded that almost immediately. They didn't do it immediately because the War Department thought that it was a Confederate hoax. And you're, they couldn't you're believe right. anybody would do anything. I think I'm really glad that we, we got to that point, Professor Finkelman, because you're right, context does matter. We, we made it clear from the outside of the show we're talking about the U.S. context. And it is, freedom of speech, it's, the fir- it's in the First Amendment, the Constitution. I mean, it, it was part of the key ideas around our republic. George Washington said, if the freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. This was absolutely key to the idea of of the Republican. So I, th- I think it's it's important to note that this isn't meant to be a, uh, a recipe for reactions in all contexts. Um, I want to get to one last listener's question here. We, we only have a minute, so I'm just going to let's see. I'm going to go to you, Professor Stern. A listener asks: Is it okay not to get to prohibit students uh, from reading The Merchant of Venice in school? And I think this gets to the involvement of government and freedom of speech. But very quickly, because we just have a minute left. Yeah, I think the answer is, listen, I teach anti-Semitism. How can I do without having students read Mein Kampf? Um, you know, <laughs> so I think on a college campus in particular, you want to have students exposed to ideas precisely to learn how some of them can be then uh, used politically and otherwise for harmful uh, effects. But if you can't study the primary sources, 
you know, you're just looking through people like me and others who, who describe it as opposed to looking at the actual words to understand who's behind it and why they're driving it. Fair enough. Professor Kenneth Stern, Professor Paul Finkelman, thank you so much for joining us tonight on this complicated subject. Thank you for having us. Thank you indeed. a man